0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Hossein Banoi about his new book, Hidden Liberalism, Burdened Visions of Progress in Modern Iran, which was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Banai is an Associate Professor of International Studies in the Hamilton Lugar School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington, and also Research Affiliate at the Center for International Studies at MIT. Dr. Banai, Hossein John, if I may, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: Uh, to start off, saying, uh, could you please uh, tell us a bit about your personal and research background and also, you know, what kind of research you are interested in and have been working on?
1: Sure. Um, well, I uh, should say since this is a book on Iran, I am Iranian by birth. Um, I was born and raised in Iran until I was about 15 years old, um, grew up in Tehran. Um, so I completed my elementary and secondary um middle school education in Iran. I started high school in Canada. And then after uh, I was 15, and we, my family and I moved to Toronto in Canada. Uh, I went to high school there and then university at York University, where I studied political science um, and specialized in both international studies and political philosophy. And then after that, I did my master's in international relations at the London School of Economics uh, in London. Um, And it became clear after I did my master's that I was really interested in international theory, political theory, Um, those subfields were still really pulling on me. So um, when I started my doctoral studies at Brown University, I uh, uh, continued with political theory as my primary field and then international relations as my um, secondary field. Um, Throughout all my studies and in my dissertation work, I have really focused um on iran um from both an intellectual history perspective but also in terms of contemporary topics as well so um uh, my research interests are at the intersection of international relations and political theory with special interests in topics in uh democratic theory in liberalism and non-western settings uh human rights uh, as well as diplomatic history, and specifically on U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, one hat that I wear, the other hat that I wear, I should say, in international relations is really um, linked to this 15-year project. I've been a co-convener on U.S.-Iran relations, uh, which has been jointly based out of MIT, uh, Brown, and now at Indiana University with two of my colleagues there. So the other uh, books I've published are co-authored by the um, uh, uh collaborators based out of those institutions um and uh but throughout this period I've also maintained an interest in um political development of Iran uh, especially from the standpoint of political um theory and this book really um, came out of that interest primarily
0: mm. um I mean is that the only story behind the book or is there um, something more
1: well um the specific story behind the book is actually has to do with my interest in graduate school, when I was doing my doctoral work, um, I was reading the kind of canonical works in liberal political theory, which were really in vogue in the American Academy, especially. You can't really do a political theory course in a mainstream program at an American university without getting a thorough education in John Rawls, for instance, and in the canon of liberal political thought. Um, And especially since my dissertation focused on um, this kind of puzzle of democracy in Iran. I was My dissertation uh, was about contextualizing the struggle for democratic governance in Iran from the late 19th century all the way to uh, the late 20th century. Um, and uh, in the course of that research, um, I really became interested in how the language that was employed in Western liberal political theory seemed to completely discount the presence the uh um, a, a, a real practice of liberal political thought in non-western settings it was either ignorant of it or um it did not have the linguistic capabilities to be able to read the primary literature in those fields. And so after I finished my dissertation, um, and I was thinking about turning it into a book, it became clear to me that actually all along, instead of democracy, I had been thinking about liberalism in the Iranian context. And um, especially how absent what seemed to be so substantively present in during the course of Iran's political development, how absent it was linguistically, even in the works of Iranian political thinkers um, and uh, politicians. And so I really became curious about why is it that liberalism is um, such a uh, has a a, such a different standing in non-Western settings and especially the non-Western setting that I was most familiar with, um, Iran. And that really launched me into this project of trying to figure out why it was that liberalism, the argue, arguably the most successful ideology of the, um, especially second half of the 20th century in, in the world, in the West, um, seemed to have very little resonance uh, or at least public acknowledgement in the non-Western world, uh, especially at the same time, as other ideologies such as you know um, socialism, communism, nationalism, uh, varieties of royalism um, seem to be present that also had presence in in Western societies as well. Liberalism always stood out to me as something that was really understudied in non Western contexts, and uh, that inquiry really launched the interest in this book and eventually what it became: um, Hidden Liberalism.
0: Mm. Um I want to follow up on a, a couple of points there but um let's start with the you know most obvious question the title of the book hidden liberalism which very efficiently sums up your main argument at least um, as I understand it uh but before getting into those points and before um uh, talking about uh, the context of Iran specifically um could you tell us how do you define liberalism I mean what is li- liberalism and what is hidden about it yeah
1: very good question i struggled with that very same question at the starting point of my inquiry because liberalism just seemed such a vast subject matter such a vast intellectual terrain and getting a handle on it um, was very difficult um, it can still be very difficult and i was lucky in a sense that at the time that i was contemplating this there were a series of other inquiries by Western political theorists, mainly people like Duncan Bell, for instance, or Michael Friedan, who had written on liberal languages and um, uh, genealogies of liberalism, were also trying to pin down what would be the essence of the liberalism as an intellectual project, but also specifically as a political and moral project. And um, as I was reading that literature and I was trying to kind of um, arrive at at a kind of a clear understanding myself, it became clear to me that I really identify with especially the work of Duncan Bell in uh, his uh, now very famous article, what is liberalism in which he basically um, uh, uh, pitches liberalism as a very big tent ideology um, that uh, has a variety, contains a variety of different languages. It responds to different contexts um, differently and, um, uh, and yet it has a kind of a discernible common substance. And that substance really boils down to um, a, a preference for unencumbered self-expression individuality, and a, 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 a preference for toleration, um, a prizing of reason over the passions, uh, very broadly understood. Um uh, uh, as well as constitutional government, uh, a government that is uh, has uh, certain limits uh, uh, placed on it uh, that are meant to really preserve individual liberty and the principle of equal respect uh, for human dignity, for instance. Um, so that common essence is something that liberals share um, universally, but the language in which they express it, the struggles in which they engage to realize those preferences into uh, specific laws in particular contexts differ and look different in different settings. What struck me about liberalism conceived up that way is that it is far from a kind of a universal rational project, um, especially in the manner in which Western political theorists have oftentimes taken for granted to be, um, and I wanted to really push back in this book uh, by offering this other mode of liberalism uh, that I call hidden liberalism uh, that has a different language, a different set of practices in in modern Iran.
0: Mm. And and you start the <clears throat> you start the book with uh, grouping. Uh, liberal uh, political thought in Iran into two categories. Uh, one of them is uh, liberal antipathies and, and the other one is liberal prescriptions. Um, could you tell us a bit more about these two um, rather broad categories and what each of them exactly entail? And um, I mean, what is it that links these two seemingly contrasting elements into a more or less uh, cogent liber- liberal project?
1: Yeah, another excellent question. I think um when I was deciding as to how I was going to uh, talk about the substance of liberalism in Iran over the course of the period that this book covers, roughly from the late 19th century to the beginning of the 21st century, um, it became very clear to me that I did not want to offer a singular, essentialist, um, liberal definition that would kind of captured this very long period and a whole range of different political thinkers that um, not only contained deep contradictions between them, uh, but also even within their own individual thoughts as well. So I thought the best way to divide this, and I again, um, the example here that really helped me was the work of Alan Ryan, political philosopher Alan Ryan, um, who in his book on uh, the making of modern liberalism really talks about the liberal project as uh, being defined by a set of antipathies and prescriptions. Liberals are always against something and for something in place of it. So that's how I think of antipathies and prescriptions. The things that Iranian liberals um, uh, uh, over that time period can be said to be against, and I identify three antipathies here, anti-traditionalism, anti-absolutism, and anti-imperialism. And uh, the things that Iranian liberals are for or have have shared the common uh, set, common uh, project um, on. And these are uh, liberal nationalism, constitutionalism and pluralism uh, and. Uh, although this is a kind of a a, a neat topology, there are many other um, categories that one could think of. I wanted to especially think about three broad subcategories under antipathies and prescriptions that would encapsulate a whole range of other um, antipathies and a whole range of other um, prescriptions. Um, uh, But uh, as a starting point in this inquiry, I wanted also to maintain analytical clarity and not really, you know, offer 15 or 20 um, different antipathies. And I, you know, hope that this uh, kind of um, classification um, would be useful for future researchers who want to actually elaborate on these specific antipathies. But as a starting point in understanding liberalism in Iran, it's struck me that the, especially the first generation of. Um, what could be classified as liberal political thinkers um, in Iran were especially keen on pushing against the decadence, corruptions, and really the traditional um, culture that was uh, that they found to be um, uh, uh, really constraining um, and uh, claustrophobic in uh, the mid to late 19th century. Um, this cohort of intellectuals that I outlined in Chapter 2 um, were especially interested in modernizing Iran in the same fashion as the modernizers in the Ottoman court at that time, which the Iranian intellectuals really look up to as, uh, a, a, as the kinds of um, uh, reforms and programs that could really rescue Iran out of its traditionalist um, a decadent Uh, position vis-a-vis other regional powers and especially uh, Western European powers. Within the Ottoman court itself, I should say, um, those reformers who were working on the Tanzimat, uh, it was called, they were looking to the Europeans. They were trying to imitate many of the constitutional principles and um, uh, philosophies that were Uh, very in vogue in European capitals Paris and London especially in post-enlightenment Europe Uh, and they wanted to kind of import those wholesale into uh, uh, administering um, Ottoman law and uh, especially Ottoman governance. So there was this kind of ripple effect from the West already that was reaching um, Iran in in the manner of anti-traditionalist antipathies. And here um, uh, really the A main kind of first spark was to transform Iranian culture and to uh, move it away from um, even at the level of the alphabet um, uh, to something that more closely resembled um, modern westernized uh, ways of discourse of organization and of thinking about the relationship between the rulers and the ruled. And this leads to the second antipathy of anti-absolutism, which, uh, as the uh, name suggests, uh, was really geared toward ending the arbitrary rule of hereditary rulers who were oftentimes ill-equipped to um, not only glean what people under them really needed for the society to be transformed along those, uh, uh, modern, um, projects, but also especially, um, uh, to introduce efficiency and accountability in matters, matters of governance. Um, and this, uh, uh, anti-absolutist antipathy is something that exists to this day. Unaccountable power, um, is something that liberals hate with passion more than anything else. The rule of law um Qanun, as uh, uh, Iranian um liberals of the uh, time who really championed especially in the anti-absolutist uh, vein uh, uh the reforms that were needed um to bring Iran into uh, the community of a uh, community of modern um, states um thinkers like Mirza Malcolm Khan for instance or um uh, uh, Mirza Ali uh, 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 uh Ahumzadeh, Muhammad Um Khan, uh, Kermani, et cetera, et cetera, they were really interested in um, focusing on, on the establishment of the rule of law uh, and of checks and balances in matters of uh of governance. And then the last antipathy, and this was something that was not apparent so much at the time of um the late 19th century, it would come much later as Iran's dependence on Western powers become uh, clear to intellectuals as a as a key obstacle to uh, true reform and the development of country into a modern nation state. So, in the uh, mid to uh, second, uh, well, mid to late um, the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, really, um, uh, that antipathy is anti imperialism um, to Restrict as much as possible foreign meddling in Iran's internal affairs and to really advocate for uh, Iran's independence. Um, going to prescriptions, I, I don't have to say much here because the prescriptions are meant to be remedies to those antipathies. So um, uh, uh, you have constitutionalism, uh, which is meant to be as a remedy to absolutism and anti uh, uh to the problem of absolutism and traditionalism uh, the constitutional revolution of 1905 to 1911 um is probably the uh, single most important development in this regard in that it features um those antipathies channeled into um actual political prescriptions in the rec- in the realization of constitutional documents and constitutional government however Uh, kind of tenuous and feeble and short-lived that experiment was, it nevertheless was a very important um, uh, development. Um, Similarly, uh, liberal nationalism is a particular prescription meant um, to be a counter to uh, uh, the problem of imperialism. And here, I mean, we can talk about this more later, but Um, I I say liberal nationalism because nationalism as a project is something that actually is championed by a variety of other ideologies as well. Um, uh, uh, Socialists slash communists, um, uh, traditionalists, um, the religious clergy, for instance, um, uh, they all champion the cause of nationalism and Iran's independence, but they put the emphasis in not so much constitutional government, but in what they uh, what was the their particular normative political agenda so for the religious nationalist it was uh, Sharia based um, uh, independent government and for the uh, uh, socialists it was uh, uh, not liberal constitutionalism but uh, uh, to make a very complicated political scheme simple uh, a variant of social democracy um, even communist, Uh, 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 one-party rule in the more extreme um, manifestations of the the party, for instance, um, um, in Iran. Um, So uh, liberal nationalism was different in that it really focused on um, constitutional government, um, but also constitutional government that was especially bound by international law and norms of human rights that were emerging in the second half of the 20th century probably the most well-known avatar of liberal nationalism is the uh iranian prime minister um muhammad who obviously um is very well known to western uh, audiences for having been deposed through a cia um mi6 sponsored coup um that brought back the uh, a monarchy uh, in, into Iran after a brief experimentation with parliamentary representation, not necessarily parliamentary democracy, but parliamentary representation. Um, uh, but there are other important uh, liberal nationalists, uh, Mohammad Ali Furuqi, for instance, uh, another Iranian prime minister, precursor to um, Mossadegh, I, I think was even more important in this regard, because he not only focused on the political project of ensuring Iran's resources remained independent and in the hands of Iranian politicians and that Iran was recognized as a sovereign nation state. But domestically, at a cultural level, Furukhi was absolutely key in working on establishing, institutionalizing domestic public spaces, and cultural spaces where a sense of um, uh, Iranian national liberality um, uh, could come into being, where the arts, Iranian um, arts and crafts um, could be made discernible to the lay public, where um, uh, a a coherent and um, uh, substantive curriculum at all levels of education Uh, uh, could be truly Iranian and not a simple imitation of uh, Western curricula, for instance. And um, and Farooqi, who was instrumental in creating a lot of cultural and political institutions domestically to really um, uh, bring a great deal of substance to uh, this liberal nationalist um, uh, uh, project, uh, is really, in many respects, the hero of liberal nationalism. Um the last prescription, pluralism is something that comes much later. and it's really, I say in the book, to me, a response not so much to the depredations of the twentieth century um, that many countries around the world experience the question of, you know, uh, decolonization, of independence, of building a modern, uh, economy, uh, modern uh, political institutions, um, uh, the liberation of women, etc., but rather a direct response to the advent of theocracy in Iran after the 79 revolution. Uh, pluralism is probably the um, uh, uh, the latest um, liberal prescription uh, that found a special uh, or special resonance in the works of. Intellectuals of uh, reform minded intellectuals, but also non regime or non reform uh, uh, affiliated intellectuals who are really interested in um, uh, 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 presenting other um, uh, perspectives um, uh, uh, alongside uh, kind of Islamic reformist perspectives for making the state more democratic, creating a space for secular, non-religious perspectives. Um, And that pluralist project is something that itself is a kind of a manifestation of a late liberal Western uh, development uh, that um, uh, uh, many multicultural Western societies, for instance, uh, were having conversations around as well uh canada where i grew up for instance the question of multicultural citizenship in the works of liberal theorists will kimlicka for instance in the 90s was something that was trying to really come to terms with how best to account for the diversity of um, ethnic backgrounds religious backgrounds um, linguistic backgrounds as well as perspectives in a diverse liberal society Um, uh, that would not result into conflict, into violence. Um, Well, there was a variant of that taking place in Iran, too. But here it was really deliberately meant to push um, away the kind of the centrality of the Islamic reformist agenda that was trying to make the Islamic Republic more um, democratic. So broadly, those are the kind of the six categories that I... Uh, divide into three antipathies and three prescriptions um, in, during the course of the last century or so in Iran.
0: Mm. But but the question uh, that that comes to mind here is that uh, how did this you know hidden liberalism come into being in the first place in Iran? Um, I mean, what did uh, necessitate it, if you like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I uh, maybe it's good to, for me to say something about what I mean by hidden liberalism, since I've talked about liberalism and liberalism in, in Iran looking a certain way. Hidden liberalism i mean i this is a concept that i it, that kind of came to me um it, it, as i was reading a lot of primary source documents um speeches memoirs um uh, uh, translations um of western uh works of western uh, liberal thought uh you know from the late 19th century all the way to Uh, the reform period at the end of the the 20th century in Iran, for instance. What I found noticeable across all these works spanning a century was the way in which um, intellectuals and political thinkers seemed to go out of their way to um, dissociate themselves uh, uh, from the Western liberal uh, affiliations and ideologies, while substantively communicating those ideologies wholesale. Um, and I so I kind of made a note about this that it was interesting that on the one hand, they seemed to go out of their way to say we're not liberals or um, depicting the kinds of political projects, these antipathies and uh, prescriptions that they were championing as something that was just in the national interest or that it was native to Iran even. Um, uh, but in fact, the substance was liberal. Um, it was at the end of the day about the preservation of those kind of very um, uh, kind of loosely articulated um, essence of the liberal project, you know, unencumbered self-expression, um, toleration, accountability, um, uh, 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 reason over uh, 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 fanaticism and, and, and passions. Um Uh, you know, uh, modernity over tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, so it it became clear to me that um, liberalism was almost a a taboo as subject matter um, because it would very quickly disqualify the person, the intellectual, the political thinker, the political reformer um, uh, as a plaything of Western imperialism. And uh, while I was writing this book, I was also reading a great deal about Indian intellectuals, Indian liberals in uh, post-Raj uh, 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 India, and it it uh, it was striking to me how they had they were behaving in the same way as well. How um, uh, 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 Turkic intellectuals um, in the um, immediate kind of post-Ottoman period will also be. Egyptian intellectuals. Um, Albert Hurrani has a wonderful book called The Liberal Age about the Arab world in which he also kind of points out that, you know, the, the way to understand the liberal substance of many intellectuals in uh, mid 19th century to mid 20th century in the Arab world is to really always read between the lines and to kind of undo the political doublespeak of intellectuals. So it became very clear to me that actually uh, uh, liberalism was deliberately being avoided as a label uh, and as a uh, marker of political affiliation, but that uh, it was also most effective when that label was avoided in that way. And, And so hidden liberalism uh, I call it the judicious um, uh, thought practice of liberalism, uh, of liberal uh, of liberalism in a manner that it would be unfamiliar to its would be opponents. Um, it's a way of being liberal without um, uh, 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 making it easy for your opponents to label you as such. Um, and that kind of behavior seemed to me that kind of thought practice. Um, Seem to me to be uh, uh, apparent in many post-colonial and semi-colonial um, societies, and here um, I kind of explain in the book that hidden liberalism really speaks to a dual burden of responsibility on liberal intellectuals. On the one hand, they have to assert liberal principles against the existing regime, so they want you know greater freedoms, they want more accountability. They want more toleration. They want a relatively um, uh, uh, open public space where equal respect can be observed. Um, They want the rule of law, et cetera. Um, But at the same time, they have to be mindful of the ways in which that regime, that society, that state has been disfigured by the influence of Western imperialism, which oftentimes was liberal imperialism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, so that um, they could not, uh, 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 in fact, be seen as uh, uh, doing the same work of liberal intellectuals, albeit now in a non-oppressive, progressive way. And so that dual burden, I think, is the, in the DNA of hidden um, liberalism, is to assert liberal rights against the state, but also always be mindful of the fact that the state is disfigured by the legacy of liberal Western imperialism. Um, And and therefore, uh, uh, that uh, uh, I I call hidden liberalism, uh, perhaps one of the most effective variants of liberalism, in that it is self reflexive from the beginning, it is always taking account of its own origins, it is aware of what practically works and doesn't, what would be in the greater interest of um, uh, liberal principles progressing in a society. Uh, the kind of language that is kind of very avowedly or publicly liberal versus the kind of language that it is um, uh, avowedly and publicly about very local concerns, that it doesn't attach itself to those ideologies so, so proudly. In many respects, I think the relative success at a substantive level of the liberal project during the course of... Iran's political development in the last century or so compared to that of, let's say, socialism, I think owes to that hiddenness um, that liberals have employed. I think many post-colonial societies, many um, semi-colonial societies um, have have been able to internalize liberal norms and practices, um, uh, and you see it in protests against the state, for instance, Um, uh, so much more successfully than socialist practices because socialism or communism um, had a very publicly avowed, very doctrinaire, unapologetically kind of pro-Soviet in the context of the second half of the 20th century um, affiliations that those intellectuals associated with them openly proclaimed. Uh, Liberals didn't have that. And I think that accounted both for their failings, but also uh, for their kind of long-term success in in uh having these values kind of seep in more in in, in the society.
0: Mm. And um going back uh to something you mentioned very briefly earlier Hossein, um how did this uh liberal political thought manifest after the uh Iranian revolution in 1979?
1: Yeah, it's a very uh curious thing because unlike other post-colonial societies or many of them anyway um Iran experienced a a massive upheaval in the form of the 79 revolution that um, overthrew a secular uh, hereditary monarchy uh, that was a modernizing force in in Iranian politics and replaced it with um, not a kind of uh, constitutional government that had been championed by uh, uh liberals and nationalists of different um uh, sorts but by a, a religious form of government a, a theocracy and islamic theocracy and hidden liberalism after the revolution becomes even more um entrenched um in a way because whereas before under the palavi regime um it's Um, chief antipathy was absolutism and it had to kind of hide itself um, in ways that did not appear as threatening to the arbitrary power of this principle of hereditary monarchy. Um, After the revolution, it had to situate itself against a system that had um, religion as the basis of uh, the constitution of the state, um, but also uh, 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 the, a kind of religious absolutism um, that did not allow for the kinds of traditional reform approaches that were undertaken under the Pahlavi regime. Um, I say in the chapter um, that covers this period that really the lineage of um, uh, liberalism uh, in the second half of the 20th century cannot be understood without the lineage of anti-liberalism in that same period. And anti-liberalism is really um, the uh, a singular, most coherent antipathy, if you will, of the Islamic Republic um, regime after the revolution. Um, uh, whereas under the Shah, um, it was not necessarily anti-liberalism that defined the ideologies of the Pallavi monarchy. The Pallavi monarchy, ideology was about modernity and progress. It was modern progress that really drove and authoritarian liberalism is something that they employed, you know, um, liberalizing the curriculum, the 1963 white revolution programs of the Shah, for instance, were meant to liberalize uh, curricula, uh, make women uh, 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 more po- pr- uh, prominent participants in society, um, liberalizing and relaxing cultural norms, pushing back against religion and traditionalist ways of um, living in Iran. You know, I joke that you know women went from uh, being beaten for wearing the hijab under the Pahlavis to being beaten for not wearing the hijab um, after the revolution. That tells you those, that, as facetious as that example may seem. Um, It tells you about the essence of the antipathy of those two regimes. The antipathy of the Palladi uh, era was um, anti-traditionalism. And authoritarian, progressive, authoritarian, liberal approaches were thought to be the prescription. And that forced liberals to behave accordingly. After the revolution, the antipathy of the Islamic Republic um, really is this anti-Western modernity and especially anti-liberalism. That is something that is very much in the air, I should say, in the kind of variety of third-worldist liberation uh, movements um, in in many post-colonial societies. Political Islam also in this period is is becoming so much more um, organized and known as an effective mobilization force against um, anti-Westernism in those societies. And so, Uh, Iran experiences the first successful um, Islamist revolution anywhere in the world that takes over a modern state. And the antipathy of the state is really um, anti-Western liberalism. And so liberals are even more beleaguered, more challenged, especially in that first decade after the revolution. That's a decade in which I was really brought up in Iran, and I, I saw this in the literal change in um, uh, school curricula, uh, how our books change, how the teaching of, you know, even evolution was taken out of the, uh, books. Every book had at the beginning of it, um, Quranic, um, um, injunctions and, um, you know, the, the, the school they started with recitation of, kind of uh you know uh, uh, pledges of loyalty to uh, uh, uh to to the Islamic republic to um to to the ways of it kind of a devout and um faithful way of life um and and uh, and its opposite uh, kind of grievance and anger against kind of uh, uh everything from atheistic soviet um, communism um, to the kind of mater- overly materialist, licentious um, uh, liberalism and the uh, materiality of, of Western countries, um, et cetera. Um, so liberals in this environment had to really lower their expectations. Um, it, the Pallavi era, um, paradoxically, brought a lot of progress for liberal-minded intellectuals. That's why a lot of them were in the royal court, even. Um After the revolution, um, all of those, um, advantages went away and here the, you know, progress was now measured into how best you could, um, create very small private spaces of, um, um, uh, self and collective enjoyment, um, uh, to be able to read banned books band to listen to banned music and i should emphasize this is the first decade after the revolution roughly i'm talking about after um uh, uh, the, uh in the second and third decades especially after the advent of the reform movement um that society generationally changes and their, those spaces become much more enlarged and the zones of um confrontation move elsewhere but um Uh, Liberal, hidden liberalism in that post-revolutionary period um, now became so much more concerned with the project of preserving and furthering a pluralist public space um, uh, 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 to always pushing back against the monistic um, essence of the Islamic uh, constitutionalist system in Iran, which had as a single source of the good, really Islam um, uh, and uh, the, uh, the Sharia um, uh, as, a, as a system of its laws. Pluralism here meant um, always emphasizing that there are a multiplicity of ways to a good life, um, that toleration of multiple perspectives, that toleration of diversity and different ways of living, is very important and cr- creating and preserving that space really becomes a task of um, liberal minded intellectuals and reformers in this period. And it, it is uh, 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 for that reason, very limited, very slow because the state is so much more repressive. Um, and many of them, this is the great decade of the brain drain in Iran. Uh, many of them start to really leave the country and go um, to um Uh, Western societies, uh, where they could actually live their lives in, uh, uh, you know, without fear of kind of arbitrary detentions, harass, daily harassments, etc. And my own family and myself are part of that kind of flight from the country, um, um, as well.
0: Mm. Um, As as the last uh, question um, about the book, Hossein, you you have looked at hidden liberalism with a focus on the Iranian context, right? But um, is there any sort of implications of uh, hidden liberalism for the study of liberal thought practices in other non-Western post-colonial settings and more broadly in the global context?
1: I hope so. I mean, one of the things that I emphasize in a book, which, again, it struck me when I started looking into this more and more, I use this phrase that Western uh, political theory has a visibility bias when it comes to understanding and seeing liberal thought practices outside of the West. If If it doesn't look exactly as how liberal arguments and liberal practices were uh, engaged with in Western societies, then they don't see, tend to see it. So hidden liberalism, this is a double meaning of the term, is really hidden to them, uh, to Western political theorists. And um, this is a real big problem, especially since the frontiers of liberal research and intellectual thinking in the are in the Western Academy, um, uh, that that variant of liberal thought practice is completely looked over. Uh, now, since the Kind of for the last 15 years or so, there has been a little tiny space opened, what's called comparative political theory um, in Western um, universities, where kind of localized, contextualized uh, practices of Western ideologies outside the West are being more and more paid attention to. Uh, What I hope that those who read this book and look at the example of Iran um, can gain in terms of thinking about variants of liberalism elsewhere is to first and foremost um, uh, 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 understand that liberal antipathies and prescriptions may look different in their own contexts uh, to be able to map out and chart how it is that the uh, kind of inevitably necessarily dialectical process between native intellectuals and Western intellectuals looks like in particular countries. And um, uh, to be able to then uh, juxtapose that inquiry onto the political development of a particular society or state, Um, to what extent has either um, the state succeeded in pushing that ideology out to a point where even its hidden manifestation doesn't matter Uh, or the reverse, as in the case of Iran, for instance, that the state society dynamic is um, uh, uh, lively enough that the society is always pushing back against the state by um, uh, uh, very successfully camouflaging its progressive development, even under the cloak of, or under the thumping weight, let's say, of authoritarian practices of the state, Um, that that the society continuously finds zones of um, uh, self-reflection, of open and tolerant engagement, and that these liberal norms find deeper um, roots uh, that over time can um, can really challenge the authoritarian practices of the state. So it strikes me, it strikes me that um, this visibility bias has to be pushed back against in especially Western academy first and foremost. And this book is really an attempt to do that more than anything else. And secondly, to I think rather than kind of take it for granted that these ideologies are Westernized or that have no meaning or um, um, discernible lineage in. Uh, non-Western settings um, to go and investigate to see whether that in fact is the case or not. And I was surprised. I started off very ignorant about whether, um, uh, in fact, liberalism was alien to Iran or not. And as as I started reading these uh, memoirs and notebooks and political tracts from the middle of the 19th century to today, I was astonished by how engaged Iranian intellectuals and political figures were with works of Western thought and how they were contemplating among themselves, either in private or publicly, um, in private through all sorts of secret societies in in the late 19th century, for instance, Um, and and later on through uh, kind of private gatherings um, uh, to try to figure out what the kind of localized, rooted native um perspective uh on these on these um ideologies from the west would look like. And 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 I was very surprised to find that there there was a great deal to to write and talk about there.
0: Mm, thank you, hussein Um there's obviously a lot more in the book and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, um I'd like to ask uh, better, you're working on something right now, saying, or are you thinking about doing a research on a particular topic in the near future?
1: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I've become very interested um, as a result of this book. This is the kind of project I'm pursuing right now on the relationship between um, liberal legitimacy and enmity. Um, the whole topic of antipathies and uh, liberal thought really got me interested in, um, first of all, how uh, poorly liberalism seems to take account of enmity social enmity between um, different groups different ideologies and how that seems to actually be a central challenge to principles of uh, uh, liberal political legitimacy um, and I'm so, so I'm working on this is more abstract um, it, it doesn't have anything to do with Iran it's just like the liberal liberal theory itself um, liberalism seems to uh, place a high, premium on the moral principle of equal respect um between persons, between individuals. And um and, and in this regard, equal respect is something that um, is fundamental to um the comprehensive um, uh, view of liberalism. And you find this in Rawls, you find this in Charles Lahmer, you find this in um, uh, uh Ronald Dorkin and a variety of other um, uh, liberal uh, thinkers and practitioners works. But it strikes me that actually um, the principle of equal respect for persons is something that continuously undermined by um, enmity in society. In other words, uh, oftentimes people have very good reasons to not only hate someone or hate an ideology, um But to really um, act on um, uh, those feelings and uh, those reasons are kind of dismissed offhand by liberal um, uh, thinkers as being unreasonable, as things that are outside the bounds of uh, a good, decent society. So I'm trying to kind of work through this and figure out. Uh, why it is that this kind of insistence that's, uh, that liberals have that these views are necessarily unreasonable actually ends up undermining uh, a lot of liberal principles itself. So that's one project. And Enmity is, um, uh, as a whole, a big project that after I'm done with this short article on liberalism and enmity, I'm going to um, turn to, I'm interested in the sources of enmity and how, um, uh, 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 as a... Uh, uh, a social political force um, it seems to define political ideologies um, and theorizing about um, those ideologies um, uh, so much more um, um, kind of uh, powerfully than other factors that are material factors that are oftentimes talked about social class for instance uh, or identity being one. So those are the projects
0: that I'm working on right now. Mm, Both sound really exciting and thought provoking. And hopefully we can talk about it again on this very podcast whenever it comes out. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any further comments before saying goodbye, Hussain?
1: No, I I wish to thank you for this opportunity, uh, for these very sharp, crisp questions, uh, for me to be able to talk about this book, to talk about the case of Iran. Um, And I hope um, uh, your listeners and fellow political theorists see a value in, in checking some of these arguments
0: out. I'm sure they will. And it's me who should thank you for coming on the show, speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your uh, wonderful uh, work with our listeners. I really enjoyed reading the book, uh, but I enjoyed it even more to uh, talk about it with you today. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you very much,
0: Amirjan.